America, and this is Story Sanctuary. Story Sanctuary is a space for NICU parents to process and share their stories as a form of healing. Each episode features a different family's birth and NICU journey, and today we're joined by Karita. Karita, where does your story begin? Hi, Erica. Thank you for having me. Um, my story begins, actually, my son Isaac was a 26-weeker. Um, he was my third child. I had two miscarriages prior to that. So I was high risk from the beginning. Um, my doctor told me that I would be seeing maternal fetal medicine um, every couple of weeks, starting at 14 weeks, actually, because they suspected that I had um, issues with my cervix, which is what may have caused the first two miscarriages but they weren't positive. So they kind of wanted to be a step ahead and keep me in contact with maternal fetal medicine um, as early as possible. So up until 21 weeks, the cervix looked fine. I was very sick. I had lots of other medical issues um, being admitted back and forth in the hospital, but my cervix seemed okay. However, at 21 weeks, um, I went in for a routine checkup and they realized that my cervix had shortened to about one centimeter, um, which was pretty significant from my appointment that I had the week before. So they sent me to labor and delivery immediately um, to have a cervical cerclage placed. Um, and that is a stitch that's put in the cervix to try to keep it from opening. Because my cervix had not opened, luckily it had just shortened. So they were trying to you know, take care of that. The procedure was considered successful um, because sometimes during that procedure, your water can break and things like that. Um, and then unfortunately, sometimes you have to deliver at that point. And for me at 21 weeks, that was not a viable gestation. So I'm really glad that su the success rate was pretty good for me. So um, after that, I started seeing maternal fetal medicine every week because they needed to check on the cerclage. Um, and at 26 weeks, exactly, it was a Friday, I had a doctor's appointment and they checked everything. However, this was the one appointment that they did not check my cervix, um, which I'm not sure why if they felt like they didn't need to, but this was the one appointment where my cervix was not checked. Uh, my appointment was maybe about 10 a.m. By 3 p.m. at home, I was contracting every 10 minutes. And so I went straight to labor and delivery. I didn't call the doctor or anything because I knew that I was in labor. And I got there and I was six centimeters dilated and they were able to feel my son's feet. Now, prior to this, I had given complaints about, you know, I'm really uncomfortable. I feel like my son's really low. Like, I don't know if this is normal. I've never made it this far in pregnancy, so I don't know. But they kept telling me everything was fine. You know, it's normal. He's probably just, you know, breach, whatever. So I feel like had I been checked a little more thoroughly, um, maybe they would have noticed that labor was coming. I don't know. Um, but when I did get there, finally, I was checked six centimeters dilated and my son's feet were sticking out. So they prepped me for an emergency C-section and which was extremely scary for me because it's like, I knew that I was in labor. I knew that that probably meant I was gonna have my son that day, but just the whole, um, everything that was going on was like a whirlwind. They were giving me the injections for his lungs, but even though they were about to deliver him, um, they still gave me the injections to try to strengthen his lungs. Um, I was signing all kinds of papers. The NICU staff came down to try to talk to me about 
um, excuse me, what to expect with a 26 weeker. And all of that was kind of going in one ear, not the other. And I think that's kind of like a common thing with a lot of NICU moms who had, you know, emergency labor, things like that. The NICU team comes out and gives you all this information that you are not able to process at all because you're trying to figure out, am I going to live? Is my baby going to live? What's happening? Like, I was not prepared for this. Um, so my C-section was pretty intense, actually. Um, before they were done, the epidural wore off. So I had started feeling all the pain. Um, I have a heart condition, so my heart rate went really high. I started to hemorrhage. They couldn't stop the bleeding. Um, thank God they got my son out okay, but then they had to turn to me and figure out what was happening with me. Um, so he was whisked away to the NICU almost, you know, immediately. He was on the side of me for a little bit while they were trying to get him checked out, and then they took him away. Um, I did end up needing a blood transfusion, things like that, so I did not see him until about, he was born at 8 p.m. I saw him about maybe three in the morning, maybe two or three in the morning. Um, they let me go up to the NICU. And I saw him and we got pretty good reports initially, like, you know, for a 26 weeker, he's doing okay. He was one pound, 13 ounces. And they, you know, explained that he was intubated at that time. His lungs were a little weak, um, but he was actually, the tube was removed the next morning and he was put on um, a nasal cannula. So that was a really good sign. However, he ended up being intubated probably two or three more times um, while he was in the NICU. He went back and forth, which I know a lot of babies do. Um, our NICU stay was pretty uneventful up until with the basic, you know, feeding, growing, therapies, needing oxygen, things like that. But we didn't have any major issues up until um, he was born in November. So in December, right after Christmas, actually, um, they told me that he had tested positive for RSV, which I guess they hadn't really experienced much in the NICU because RSV is something that usually happens when kids are out in the environment, they're exposed to germs. So they were really surprised that he had gotten RSV in the NICU. Um, it was later determined, I think, that one of the nurses was sick or something and didn't realize she was sick until after. But they prepared me um, that this would be a pretty difficult role for him, that RSV is hard for kids in general, but um, a NICU baby who I think he was born in 26 weeks, so he was maybe about 34, 33 weeks at the time when he was diagnosed, like three and a half pounds. So they were not expecting him to do well at all after being diagnosed, and things did get really rough. He was reintubated. Um, he was put in an isolation room so that um, none of the other babies would get sick, and they told me that he would get worse before he got better. So they said about day 10, they expect to see a little more progress. Well, we got to about day 14, and he was going downhill fast. He was not in good shape. Um, he was placed on an oscillator, which is a very large vent um, that kind of vibrates the baby's body um, to keep things moving. And even on the oscillator at the maximum settings, he his sats were still like in the 40s. So at that point, it was a Sunday morning. Um, the doctor kind of told me we're probably at our last few minutes here, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes because nothing is changing. Um, we have the settings as high as they can go. There's nothing else we can do this is probably gonna be it. His lungs are just tired, his body's tired. Um, he had gotten a couple other infections um, as a result of the RSV, he had pneumonia, staph, and some other things. So 
he was extremely swollen. Um, he just did not look recognizable. Like I said, he was about three or four pounds at that time, but he looked like he could have been probably 10 pounds. He was so swollen. Um, so they told me that if by chance he made it through the night by some miracle, that if he did not start to progress further, they would have to send him to another major children's hospital um, here in Chicago so that he could be placed on an ECMO machine. And ECMO is kind of, you're connected to machines where it kind of like cleans the blood and try to get out the infection and everything. But they explained that a lot of adults don't survive ECMO. So their hopes for a four pound micropremie at that point was not very high. Um, but my pastor came to the hospital, prayed with me. Um, we kind of talked to the doctors and nurses together. And maybe two or three days later, the doctor called and he was like, we're going to take him off the oscillator. He's making progress. And we were all completely stunned. It was literally like a miracle. <laughs> and we didn't really know why or what happened. He just started to make progress. Um, they did explain that he was still very critically ill, but he no longer needed the oscillator. He was just put back on a vent. Um, he was still intubated, but with a traditional vent. Maybe at this point, we're like mid-January. So at the end of January, they actually talked about putting him back on the floor with the rest of the babies. He no longer was testing positive for RSV. Um, so we did, we went back out with the other babies. Probably mid-February, he was back on a nasal cannula. He didn't need any breathing tubes or anything, which this is all like how the doctors explained it to me, pretty miraculous progress for such a small child having RSV, especially because his lungs were already so um, underdeveloped from the prematurity that they were not expecting this sort of recovery at all. Um, they actually even told me to be prepared for him to come home on oxygen because that was probably the only way he would come home because of all the damage to his lungs. Um, by March, he came home March 6th. He was off of oxygen. He was feeding well. He was growing fine, like a complete miraculous turnaround. Um, and we were super excited about that. We're like, okay, he's coming home. This is such an amazing thing. We were there for 116 days total. Um, but right before discharge, we learned that he was born with something called an encephalocele, which is a neural tube defect where um, a portion of the skull doesn't close all the way. So there's brain tissue bulging through the skull and his presented itself between his eyes. So it's like right between his two eyes, he had a very large bump um, of brain tissue. This only occurs in maybe one in 11,000 live births. So it's really rare. They were not expecting that. They kept telling me that it was just loose skin because his head was so small. But because of my advocating and pushing for a neurologist to come down, a neurosurgeon, like something, as like, this is not just skin, it's pulsatile. There, it moves, you know, it gets bigger at points, it gets smaller at points, something is going on. And that was kind of my first, um, I guess, run in with really understanding the importance of advocating for your child and pushing to get things done. Because a lot of times doctors kind of group all babies together and it's like, oh, this is normal for a 26-weeker. This is normal for a micropremie. You know, he'll grow out of it. He'll be fine. But all babies are not the same. 
and you know your child. And for me, I was at the NICU almost every single day. I was um, in law school getting my Master of Legal Studies. So I was doing that at night. I was at the NICU during the day, but I made my presence known because I wanted them to know that someone is advocating for this child. Like you guys are not just gonna do whatever you wanna do. And that's how we arrived at the conclusion that he had an encephalocele, which was actually a really big deal. Um, far from just the loose skin, they kept telling me that it was. So we went home with that information and kind of, it, it was one of those things I was like, well, it's not causing any critical issues right now because they told me that he could, you know, if it got too big, he would lose his eyesight, you know, things like that. Um, because like I said, the encephalocele was right between his eyes. So it was pressing on the veins that were there um, behind his eyes. And so we went home with this, like, you know, we'll follow up with neurosurgery. At some point, they will have to do probably a pretty major brain surgery to correct it, but we won't rush it. Um, so he went home doing physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, and developmental therapy in home. And so that was kind of our busy life. Um, if you are a NICU parent, you know, once you go home, the appointments are like never ending. He also had retinopathy of prematurity. So we were seeing um, ophthalmology pretty regularly. He actually got glasses at seven months, which was like the cutest little thing. I had never seen a baby in glasses. So I was like totally smitten with him at that point. Um, but we were progressing again pretty well. Therapy was going well. He was feeding. Um, we didn't have too many major issues. At one point, he did stop breathing at home. We had to take him to the hospital. He was admitted to the PICU for about three days because they thought that he was at risk for SIDS. Um, thank God that was not the case. He just had like a weird breathing episode and it never happened again. Um, at 13 months old, that's when the encephalocele kind of came back up as a big deal because I noticed that it was getting larger and his eyes were always really red. Um, so I knew that something was happening. It was right after Thanksgiving, we took him to the ER. Um, they looked at it and the nurse that was there actually had been his nurse before. So as soon as she looked at him, she's like, this thing is huge compared to the last time I saw him, like something is not right. And it made me feel better as a parent because it's like, I knew what I was talking about. I kept saying this thing is growing, it's growing, it's growing. And it's kind of like, oh, but it's okay because it's not causing any major issues. So to have a medical professional look at it and agree with me and say, you know, you're right, this is huge. And it didn't look like this before, we need to address this. Um, so they did some tests and everything. It was maybe a couple weeks of testing, um, you know, MRI results, you have to wait for those, blood tests, you have to wait for those. So it was a couple weeks of testing and they did determine that the encephalocele needed to be repaired immediately because it was causing some issues with his vision. Um, so December 20th of 2018, he went into surgery, um, ended up being a six hour brain operation um, including a craniotomy and a metal plate placement. Um, they took a portion of his skull to cover the opening and then replaced that portion with the metal plate and screws. So it was a pretty huge surgery. Um, the neurosurgeon told me that even though he knew he was gonna have a lot of work ahead of him, he still was not prepared for what he saw once the surgery actually started. And he was just grateful that I was so persistent as a parent and that I advocated for him um, all the time. And I kept speaking up because it was actually a bigger deal than anyone really thought it was. 
um, and the issues that could have called, like I said, loss of eyesight, um, loss of some brain function and things like that had it not been taken care of when it did. So that's also a little tidbit I just want to throw out there. If you think something's going on with your child, if you think that there's something that needs to be addressed, um, really push for that because medical professionals, like I said, they know, you know, the textbook version of what's going on. But you're with your child every single day. You know when things are changing. You know when things are happening. So yeah, don't be afraid to speak up for your babies. They need you to do that because they cannot do it for themselves. So um, after that surgery, he did actually really well after. He was back kind of in therapy after a few weeks. Um, again, <laughs> the doctor was really surprised by how quickly he bounced back from that. Because like I said, this is a six, seven hour brain surgery. It was a pretty big deal. Um, he actually had a full hairline incision, so he had a lot of stitches, a lot of um, bandaging that he had going on, but that did not hold him back at all. Um, and since then, he's had a couple other operations because he had tracheomalacia, which is an opening in the, trache um, the tracheal area with a laryngeal cleft, which is when there's a gap between um, like the voice box and your larynx. So that caused some issues for him as far as choking, um, eating properly, things like that. So those things were repaired. Um, but other than that, he has done extremely well um, in his development with, like I said, we're still in therapy. It's three years later. We still do therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, whatever I feel like he needs to kind of get him to that next milestone. We have been doing that. Um, and I know it gets overwhelming to the parents who are constantly taking their kids to therapy, doctor's appointments and things like that. But it's so important to stay on top of those things because you don't want them to fall too far behind um, if you can help it. I know all kids develop at their own pace and do their own thing, but um, try to stay on top of what you can help them with. Um, and since then, since kind of our whole experience and everything that we've overcome, um, it led me to write a book called You're Still Here where I kind of share my journey to motherhood, um, overcoming my losses, high-risk pregnancy, life in the NICU, um, all those things. And I've also started a nonprofit organization called the Premium Promise Project, um, which I also call the P2 Project. Um, and, the, and people always ask me about the name. Um, we always call Isaac our promised son. That's why we named him Isaac. If you um, are a Christian or you read the Bible, you know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Um, where she was blessed with a son when she was considered barren um, because God gave her that promise. So that is where I came up with the name Isaac for our son. After losing two children and being blessed with him, we felt like he was our promise. Um, and the premium part came from just putting a spin on prematurity. Um, we kind of see it as a downer sometime, but um, I saw it as being, you know, set apart. Premium is elite, it's special, it's set apart from other things. Um, and that's how we viewed Isaac as our premium promise. So that's where the name came from. And what I've decided to do with that was kind of just help other NICU families who are on that journey, you know, share the story of our overcomings, you know, our triumphs, the hard times, the good times, um, provide support when I can to other NICU families who are seeking support. Um, I give, you know, gifts and 
care packages and things like that to the moms during that NICU journey, because we know how difficult that can be to overcome, you know, when you're in the hospital day in and day out, everything is focused on that aspect of your life and you kind of forget about yourself sometimes. So I try to speak to that aspect of NICU life as well. Um, and I think at this point in my journey, my main focus is pushing Isaac's development, but also just reaching back to try to care for other families and give them the support and encouragement that they need, because I know what that's like. Um, I know what it's like to lose a child's, you know, pregnancy loss. I know what it is to have difficulties conceiving, NICU life, preterm labor. So I feel like I have been graced to kind of help others navigate those journeys as well. So that's kind of where we are at this point in our journey. And we are so grateful for mothers like you. Thank you. Thank you. What mm-hmm. helped you survive that 116 day stay? I always tell people that for me, it was kind of as long as my son was fighting, I was fighting. You know, as long as he was overcoming all the obstacles that he was facing, I couldn't give up. I couldn't give up on him. I couldn't give up on our journey because he was trying so hard. So of course I had to try hard. Um, And I feel like I was blessed with him for a reason. And so that kind of kept me going as well. You know, it seemed like a lot at the time, but I knew that I was graced to be his mother. I was given what I needed. I just had to find it on the inside. Um, So my push was just kind of like seeing him fight so hard and knowing that if this little tiny fragile micro preemie can put this much effort into living, I can put that much more effort into navigating this journey. What would you say to a parent that's currently going through an extended NICU stay? Give yourself grace. And don't try to compare your journey to others because a lot of times like Isaac was the last baby in the NICU from what they considered like his group of babies born kind of around the same time. Um, He was one of the last babies or second to last babies there. And at one point that got really hard for me because it was kind of like, I'm watching all the other babies go home. I'm watching all the other babies start bottle feeding. Like, what are we doing here? And that became a little too painful for me to deal with. So I had to learn and just focus on our journey and take it one day at a time and celebrate every little milestone because that gives you more joy on the journey. Even if it's something as simple as your baby, you know, took one ml of milk more than he did the day before, or, you know, they turned their head a little bit today when they weren't doing that yesterday. You know, it may not seem like much, but if you can celebrate those little things and just find joy in every little part of the day, even the difficult days, you know, even when Isaac was critically ill and they were telling me that we were losing him. And I found peace in the fact that we made it one more day. Now we made it another day. Now we made it another day. So that helped me to go just keep focusing on the positives when I can. And when I needed to step back and when I needed a little break, take that break. Don't feel like you have to live your life in the NICU because that's what's going to make you a good parent. Being a good parent is understanding that you have to be well to take care of your child. And so if I could give any piece of advice, don't completely neglect yourself, 
trying to be present in the NICU all the time because that does not make you less of a parent. What you said about celebrating every milestone is incredibly important because every mom or parent that's been in the NICU for an extended amount of time knows that it's a roller coaster. Yes. And sometimes in order to protect yourself, you don't want to celebrate those little milestones because you're worried about what tomorrow will bring. Yes. But no matter what tomorrow brings, you don't want to miss out on those moments of joy because that's where your joy lies on this journey. Yeah, that's that's so good. You don't want to miss those moments of joy, focusing on what could be or what could happen. Yeah, that's definitely a very good point. So what is Isaac's personality like? Oh my goodness. He is like the life of the party. He is so, he is so full of life. And I, and I, I always joke and say like, he knows how much he's been through and it takes so much to get him down. He is like the happiest little kid. He loves everybody. Um, even like his doctors and nurses, you know, it's like he has personal relationships with them at this point. Um, and I love that about him because again, that keeps me going. You know, when I'm overwhelmed with the therapies, the doctor's appointments and the, you know, new diagnoses that we get here and there. And it's kind of like this little boy has been through so much and he's literally happy 24 (laughs) seven. And so that is what I love most. I think about his personality. Yeah. He has the best smile. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So storytelling acts as a means of healing because it allows you to shift positions And instead of your NICU story just being something that happened to you, you get to own the story and decide what you want the lasting memory to be. So when you look back on your NICU journey and on your pregnancy journey, what do you Mm -hmm. want to be the lasting memory of your story? Don't ever give up hope. Don't ever feel like you can't come back from where you are. we, there were so many points in, you know, trying to conceive, having the miscarriages, having Isaac in the NICU, where I just felt like this is it, you know, I can't do this anymore, this is too much, but when you focus on the hope, when you hold on to faith that things will get better, things will, you'll make it to the next step, you'll make progress, that is what's going to get you through, and so if I can tell anybody anything is don't lose hope. Because as long as your child is fighting, as long as they're trying, you have to keep going as well. And so hope is everything. I actually have it tattooed on my arm, um, the word hope, because I literally, that is everything to me. And I want to impart that on other parents to never lose hope in your journey. I needed to hear that today. No, I'm so glad I shared it then. Well, thank you for sharing your story and for sharing Isaac's journey with us. Thank you so much for having me, Erica.